0: Welcome to episode 65 of Reading Between the Reels. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're a new listener, we're so glad you found us. If you've been enjoying the show, please tell someone about us. Send a tweet, post to Facebook, write a review on your favorite podcast catcher, or just recommend the show to a friend. I'm Craig Dickinson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Corey Heitchmitt. Justin Eldon's out this week, but we'll be back next time. How's it going, Corey?
1: Hey, I'm good to go.
0: Awesome. And today on the show, we're joined by Ross Holliban from Fanta Tracks and the Album Cockpit podcast. How's it
2: going, Ross? It is going great, and I'm excited to be here with you, Craig and Corey. So I got my, uh, my very own CNC Music Factory here.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, tonight we are talking about Field of Dreams from 1989. It's, you know, it's by the time this drops, baseball season will have already started as we record the Giants openers tomorrow against the Yankees. Boo. Um, Uh, So we're excited to talk some baseball uh, as baseball is about to get started and to talk about this great movie. So, uh, Ross, I'm going to start with you. Why don't you start with your overall thoughts on the movie Field of
2: Dreams? I I think it's a feel-good movie. It's a a nostalgia movie. It is, you know, I'm thinking back to Billy Crystal talking about baseball and city slickers where he's like, it's how you connect with your dad. Um, or it's a way to connect with a parent or a loved one in a simple way, um, and I, I think this movie tries to share that purity. And hey, it is the simplicity of baseball; it can make people happy, um, you know. And obviously, Kevin Costner doing great things from it. Major League Baseball turning it into a, an event, you know. Since they announced it in 2019, and uh, outside of COVID, now we've had a couple games actually in the cornfield, so it's it's that piece to to think about. It's a fantasy movie, like you think of it as a baseball movie, but it's really a fantasy movie in so many ways as well. Um, so I kind of wrote a note saying, "This is a simple film about a complex story." I think is one way that I looked at it as I watched.
0: Nice. Corey, what about you? What are your your thoughts?
1: Well, I think when I look at this movie, I watched it again. I have not seen this movie, I would say, in 20-plus years. And it is not a movie that I would rank as one of my top movies. But having watched this with a different lens now, uh, I think this movie is a great movie. It does show – it really touches on the pastime of America's nostalgia with baseball. And what the game is, and the stories that go into it—that it's not just the baseball, it's not just the name of the character, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson—or it's just—it's not just their name; it's the history and the story and the, the life they lived, and sometimes the pain they had. And I think that's that's what this movie's about. But then it also turns and weaves this whole story in this field and this into this uh, kind of a. Ghost movie to bring back the ghosts of these legends and and still find a way to to kind of tell a story of what was what could have been and a life that was and things that you regret and trying to rectify regrets and fix your fix your regrets um, and so I'm I'm excited to hear what we all talk about today because this isn't a movie that I necessarily would say oh I want to pick down and, and watch watch this movie it's it's a movie after watching it the conversations you have about the movie make the movie better than you thought when you were watching it i think for me because my wife watched part of this with me and we sat down we were discussing well what what was this and this i, I didn't understand this and we started having conversations and as we did it started to become more powerful more relevant and so i thought okay that's the point of a movie like this this is a great tale it's a great story with with some historical fact characters that that do exist uh i the thing that blows me away this movie is 44 years old is that right is my math checking out there no 34 eight, years old.
0: yeah 89 so yeah 34 years.
1: 34 old. 34. and so this is a movie that a lot of listeners may have never seen i mean you realize if you look at anybody that's you know i'd say under 40 some of them this may not have been a movie that they watched may not have been a movie that has come up, you know, with in relevant conversation and time. So this could be something that spurs some people to think, Hey, maybe I want to go watch that movie.
0: Well, I watch this movie probably once a year. I love this movie and, and and I was struck this time by watching it, how much it's kind of a movie about time capsules in a way, but it also is a time capsule at this point. Like this movie does not feel dated at all. It feels like it could have been released yesterday because it's a fantasy movie. I think it fits that, you know, and it feels in, in a lot of ways um, like a very sweet, heartfelt Twilight Zone episode, you know, it kind of plays by those rules, but it's not like there's a moral lesson that you have to learn. Then you learn too late type of thing. You know, <laughs> you learn it in time in this one. Uh, and I just love, I love how magical it is. And I love that the magic is accepted so easily by Ray and his wife, especially and his kid. And there's these rules to the to the magic, um, but they're never really explained. And I love the fact the ghosts are self aware, and there's not there's not danger in this movie. Like it just it's just really sweet. Um, and then I gotta say, I mean, well, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but every time, no matter what, every time I watch this movie, I get to the end, and when the lump is in his throat, Dad, you want to have a catch, man? That just I'm thinking of like Troy from community, my emotions, my
2: emotions every time it, it gets me. I'd love this movie. And I think that's what I enjoy. I think what I enjoy the most about this movie is how much I know other people enjoy it. Um, you know, it's not my favorite sports movie. It's not even my favorite baseball movie, but I appreciate it and my love of the game is something that i can appreciate through this film so that is the part where i'm just like yeah this this is a hug to baseball and especially the nostalgia point that that corey and i both talked about as we go through the
1: story and i think i think james earl jones captures that so well and and ray liotta both capture that exact sentiment in their speeches that they give ray liotta the first night he appears on the field where he says, I love this game so much, I would have played for food money. And and the way he describes it, the sights, the smells, the sounds, you're drawn in. At that moment, in that part of the movie, I was like, this right here, this is baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a park. This is going to watch a game. This is being, having grown up, I played baseball, you know, all through high school. And I, and, and so that, that feeling is there, it brings it back instantly. And it's, it's wonderful. And then James Earl Jones, when he's talking about uh, his speech right there before he walks on the field, it is just glorious how you describe baseball. <laughs> so it is that feel-good emotion. yeah. And so I recognize that. And so it it, it is a great baseball movie uh, with a fantasy tale.
0: So let's go ahead and start breaking it down a little bit. Let's talk about cinematography. So between composition, color, camera work, Ross, what kind of things did you notice on, on this watch?
2: I think Even right from the get go, knowing that this was going to go different places, it was set up in that regard with the Ken Burns effect, with still photos being used and shown and the movement of those, you know, and Ken Burns, obviously, with with the role that he's played with baseball as well, and storytelling, I think that's beautiful. It sets up through that opening and what they've shown through the composition and the shots that they're putting together of we're gonna look back at history here. we're going to have memories And it, it's great to have a s- cinematography that, that tells that story ahead of time to say, here's the teaser of what's coming up and we're not even really in the film shots yet. Um, and once we do that, you know just the scenic, the establishing shots in this are amazing, but that's what you get. I'm in Indianapolis. So if I'm driving to Chicago or Notre Dame or I'm going through cornfields relative to this. So I've seen these areas and, and sometimes too often, um, but you get that feel of peace. You get that feel of tranquility. My My family in Western New York that I would go visit, I think about going to watch my cousins play baseball there. Um, and it, it's those, it's the shots they set up that are either dawn or dusk. And they do such a great job of bringing those purple hues in, those pinks, all of those elements. And then in contrast to the cornfields and other things that are around. So I love how they set up their establishing shots and they never had to get over overly complicated they were they're kind of old school paintings of americana that you're getting and that's the the story that the cinematography helped tell for me especially
1: in the baseball realm of things
2: corey what about you
1: Uh, i think when i look at the the movie there's a it is all in that cornfield So there's not a lot of distractions. There's not a lot of things in the background. It's fields of green. The grass is green. There's a, you can hear the clay and see the clay and the dirt. And so I feel like it's very simplistic in its colors and how it, it feels old timey with a lot of green hues, like a lot of purple hues that, that you're saying that kind of vivid ones that do stand out, but there, there's a lot of green and the lights in the background, just putting off a glow. But not overpowering. And then the old uniforms. And and so what I think of all of those things that they're doing, they're, they're setting this nostalgia feeling of baseball, this old timey. It's not the modern feel of baseball with you know a lot of color and flashy. It's the it's a farm. It's a farm in Iowa, also known as Heaven. And so I think you look at it and you say, it's a simple, it's a simple tale with fields of green. And so I love that. I love that part. The one thing uh, with the camera work that I absolutely loved was the part with the. There's a lot of references to the 70s and the 60s in here, and so he's driving this old VW bus to go pick up Terrence Mann, and it was just very noticeable, you know. Terrence Mann having they have all talked about the 60s, and, and the part where the camera is back just far enough to see the little peace windshield sticker on the VW bus, you know, which is very fitting of the time and the tale that they're talking about and the references they make to the 60s, and and so. Just little intentional things like that with the camera that they do are, are very well, and the way they move through the corn, um, they just do a great job with camera work.
0: I love what you guys are bringing up because you are bringing up stuff that that uh, I had as well, but now I don't have to. Now I get to kind of dig-, dig through the weeds a little bit to find some things, some other things. You are uh, digging through the corn on this. Digging one, not through the, the weeds. corn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but I, Corey, I did just first off. I want to jump on what you said about kind of the natural lighting. In this, I especially noticed that in the house that it feels like it's lit by like the actual lighting in the house, like the lamps and stuff. It's a little bit dark in places, but not overly. So it feels, it feels real. It lends to that, that realism in this fantasy movie. I felt um, the other things I, I love, how immersive it is. I love the fact that when at first you see um, Ray is pitching to Shoeless Joe and the camera is like over Shoeless, like you're the umpire essentially from that point of view. And then you get to see him hit the ball, and it's like that low angle, and you see that ball just travel. Because it's so low, it just adds to the magnitude of, of the home run, home run after home run into, into the cornfields. Uh, but one thing I do want to point out, because I, I love how it's played for humor, composition-wise. You have this great exchange between uh, Terrence Mann and Ray, and it's where Ray says, so what do you want? And then he goes on this. speech. I want people to be to leave me alone. I want to figure out things for themselves. And then they pan around, and you can see there's this beautiful triangle setup where you have <laughs> uh, Ray's on the right or left, Terrence on the right, hot dog vendors in the middle. Because he was talking about no, I mean, what do you want? And just repeats the question. Doesn't have to doesn't have to say. I mean, what do you want to eat? You know, the visual does it for us. But I love that just quick little trick of the camera there.
2: And I don't think it is you know, relative to to the visit to Fenway what i found very fun and so I, I teach intro to sports media at butler university sometimes and we talk about promotional elements and sponsorship it was nice to see this stadium back then And when you're looking out at the green monster, you're seeing the green monster. You're not Mm -hmm. seeing this, this ad, this sponsorship, all of these elements. So you take that snapshot and again, just kind of that wider establishment shot, putting us inside Fenway park. And that's, that's a fun trip down memory lane of, oh, wow. Remember when baseball was this simple compared to what we have right now.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you say that because uh, my brother and I and our family we went to we went to Fenway in 94, I believe is when it was. And um, the one thing we remember looking for was the Sitco sign because that was like the only ad- and it's outside the stadium. When you watch a game, it looks like it's attached to the stadium. But we we're like trying to figure out where that was at. When we we're walking up to the park and because that was the only thing. And that's what made it unique. And now it's you know, there's so many billboards everywhere. But I love that's a nice. That's a nice pull. Uh, The last thing I had for cinematography is I just have to talk about the helicopter shot of Ray and his father playing catch, and then it pulls back to that super wide shot, and you get to see all the cars just blinking on on and off and just going off and basically into eternity from there. It's just such a beautiful shot, and just what a great way to end the film.
1: Yeah, You know, the thing about, I read that that was an actual line of cars that they did. They did not, that was not a CGI, that was not a movie effect or, you know, because you could film a small view and then just copy and paste it. No, they they did an actual miles long train of cars and I think it shows, there's not a lot of things in the movie. I mean, that's a practical effect that you get in a lot of the, back then CGI just wasn't quite as big a thing, the movie effects, but I appreciate that now, Maureen more knowing that type of thing that you see that in this practical field, they shot they had to set up because there's more intentionality in some of those things.
2: Yeah. Something after, after watching this and, and deep diving on it again um, from the cinematography lens, uh, John Lindley, who is the cinematographer for this, also did a, another one of my favorite films visually, which is Pleasantville. Mm-hmm that he did about, you know, almost 10 years later. I'm interested to go back, not, not knowing ahead of time, you know, I didn't know that he did Pleasantville. As I'm researching this, I was like, oh, he did Pleasantville. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to go back and watch that now and see, okay, what relativity do I see from his framing in his approach for this film versus Pleasantville, knowing, again, how the colors worked in this, but then the colors are, are a character basically in Pleasantville and how that can play off of one another. So that that's another exciting part that came out of watching this again for me.
0: Yeah, that's a nice pull. I I, I love, that's one of the things I love doing research on this. And I start looking through what other films people have made and, and I'm like, oh, so that's why that connects for me on a subconscious level and to be able to pull those things out. So that'll be fun. I'll, I'll have to check that out as well. Uh, anything else for cinematography? Or are you guys ready to move down to sound?
2: I'm, I'm, ready. I'm ready for sound.
0: All right. So let's, let's talk about sound. We got effects, the soundtrack by James Horner uh, and then uh, any vocal sound. So Russell, I'll go ahead and start with you again.
2: Yeah. So for effects, uh, my big note in all caps here is crisp. And as you're hearing that, as someone who I'm a huge ice hockey fan, I, I played growing up, uh, I played club hockey in college. The best part about hockey for me, especially as a player, but even as a fan, is when you hear the skate crunching into the ice and you know that it's about to start. And it, it seems like it should be smooth, but but there's tension to it. There, there's that that grab and that tenacity of it. And I heard that and I, I felt like I was in the infield dirt or in the base paths, as you're hearing it, you've got crickets going in the background, which was a beautiful thing. And it makes it a summer night in these areas, but then just that crunch into it and it's just, it took me to the field.
0: Corey, I see you nodding your head there. What do you
2: add
1: to that? I absolutely agree. Ross, I mean, I'm not kidding. I got tingles on my, on my neck just thinking about this because I know exactly how – I mean, and, and I'm sure people can relate to this. Certain sounds take you back somewhere. They pull you in. They take you there. You can almost – if you were to close your eyes hearing these sounds, you would see it and you could almost smell what's there, uh, like you described with hockey. And they do this so well with baseball in this movie. I can hear the cleats walking on the clay of the dirt. When they go and Ray Liotta starts picking up the bats and starts kind of looking at the bats and pulls it, I could hear the ripple of the bag. And it was, it was one of those things that I, so many Saturdays, I remember double headers and going and opening up the bag and pulling out the bats. And it just, that feel as it comes, it's almost like a, it's just a wonderful sound and instantly right back there. I mean, the only thing I'm missing was a bag of peanuts and I would have been, I'd been sitting there going, I'm at the game. And so they, whoever the sound grips were on this, did a brilliant job of everything from the gloves catching. And those old gloves sound different than newer gloves when they catch. They have that big, thick glove. And they were using those and they make a different sound, a little thud. And then when they were diving and touching the the bass and you hear him throwing the ball and catching the ball and the sounds instantly transport you into this movie and I think that's, you cannot fake that, you cannot just pull that off so easily and it's it's something that they had to have invested an incredible amount of time to really do, to make that right.
0: Yeah. I'm loving this. Cause I had, I just basically had crack of the bat and balls hitting gloves. And, and like, you, I love how you said it, Ross, they're crisp. It's so like, it's immer- again, immersive. Like, yes, I can almost feel the ball hitting the bat when that's happening.
2: And, and I think the other, the only other note that I had there were the farm and farmhouse sounds like you're hearing that creaky screen door you're hearing the mm-hmm. spring on that as it's off in the distance and it's it, that house is always the house is the anchor for the field you know and obviously we come back to it towards the end you know and he's just like hey what's heaven and it's hey yeah. it's it's what's important to you and and what's happening and that's often that look at the house with that again you brought it up earlier the warm light coming through the windows hearing that screen door opening and it's again transporting you somewhere like i'm i'm like oh i'm at my grandmother's house you know close to jamestown new york right now i'm this is where it's taking me um and again like that's the beautiful storytelling that occurs here in the different layers that they add to all of that
0: yeah i want to talk briefly about the score uh this is it's james horner and we've done multiple james horner movies at this point he did avatar which we've done and he did willow which we've done he's a ton of other things star trek II, i think is probably my favorite uh, theme of his of course he won uh, multiple academy awards for for titanic Uh, this score though i think is is really interesting because of the instrumentation like there you can hear woodwinds and there's chimes and horns and some soft piano it's kind of a really eclectic mix and yet it also is somehow old-fashioned and takes you right back uh, into, you know, the thirties, which is really interesting, but I love it. I I think it's, I don't know if there's, if I can hum it necessarily, but it just evokes the feelings that you want it to.
1: I think, I think when the players first appear, when all eight guys come out of the cornfield and they're going to play that first time you really hear that. I don't know whether it's twenties, thirties music has a very distinct sound different than music that we have was the only way they could have made that anymore is if they had it on a record player. I mean, it was—it <laughs> just had that yeah. old twenties, thirties feel. They come out and they—they're getting—they're running to the field all excited because hey, we're playing baseball again, and and they're you know throwing the ball and, and getting ready, and and so it—that was one of the times, Craig, when I noticed music. I always forget to <laughs> notice the music. I always forget to pay attention to that. Yeah. And there were three times in this movie. You're making me pay attention more. There's three times in this movie where I noticed that. And that was one of them.
2: Yeah. yeah it's, kind of, it's, go ahead. it's kind of like a, uh, a whimsical fun boardwalk empire soundtrack mm-hmm. is kind of how it got twisted yeah. here a little And that. That's, that's just, that makes it more interesting as well. So, and especially as they time jump throughout being able to, to do that with music. It's such a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah. And you have some great needle drops in this one. I, I love when you hear uh, Willie Nelson's crazy when he's talking, when Ray's talking to the other farmer to see if he's ever heard voices. Uh, what's interesting. It's, it's actually performed by Beverly D'Angelo. Yeah. Uh, which is not a version that you usually hear. Um, but it's and what a great thing. Like you just hear it crazy. And like, yeah, that's what they're all thinking. Uh, but some other great ones. Um, daydream is, is playing when, when is Ray having a daydream? Like some of them are a little bit on the nose, uh, but I love Jessica, the Almond Brothers band uh, song playing while he's going on the trip to Boston. It's just a rocking song. Like, let's go. You get kind of fired up and, and pumped for that. So um, you also, same thing with China Grove by the Doobie Brothers when they're like, let's go to Minnesota with Terrence Mann. So kind of this weird dichotomy, but it totally works because, again, these songs are not current songs either. So you're kind of, it is kind of this time travel movie. You know, you're supposed to feel these different things. As you go through, it's, it's timeless because it incorporates all these different genres and, and different songs from different eras.
2: I, I like how there are cute. There are patient cues at times. So patient audio cues through the music. When Karen, the daughter comes over and says, uh, there's a man out there on your lawn. And all so of a sudden they start realizing what's happening and you get, A couple beats of it and it it does take it into that fantasy realm of, oh, okay. Or are we in the real world now or have we just transported somewhere else? And then there's a little bit of dialogue. Um, I think Ray, Kevin Costner speaking a little, but then it goes into the the built out track that Horner did. and I, I thought that was done beautifully being there, taking the step back and then coming back full force. And that's again, the the kind of magic and mystical quality of this film.
1: There's, there was not much dialogue in that, in that whole scene too. There was just a lot of taking in the moment and going and, and he's going to throw with shoeless Joe Jackson, you know, <laughs> I just like, he's like, I'm pitching it Shoeless Joe Jackson, but that whole scene is such a great buildup and and you know, the, the part of this movie that gets me, that makes me look and say, okay, this was a great movie was the faith reward. Kevin Costner had this faith, he was following this voice, which was making him do crazy things according to everybody else. And and to me, you know, you're disking up all your corn here and putting a field in the middle, that's bravery. And then when we fast forward almost an entire year to the next season, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking all oh, the strain, they're at the table, they're at their finances discussing it. And it's the breaking point. That's the pivotal part of that moment is that breaking point of, we? it's not that we need to lose the field, it's we're going to lose the farm. At that moment, everything has built up to now comes to life. Now the ghosts come onto the field. And and it's, it's almost that, like you're getting the faith call and it always comes right before it's too late. It always comes right at that tipping point. Because the next the next conversation they would have had in that was, all right, well, maybe we have to get rid of the field and plant some corn. And then that's the moment. OK, now everything's going to build from here. And so and so I think it's great. The music adds to it. Um, and so I think that that helps out.
0: Yeah, it's a great catch, Corey. Yeah, it is up until that very moment where that happens. And. It's also a natural segue into talking about vocal sounds cuz sometimes it's kind of hard to figure out what the most important voiceover things are in a movie like in a movie in this one it's crucial, right? There's three great ones. If you build it he will come. Ease his pain and go the distance. Like vital <laughs> for moving the plot forward. And there's some there's some debate about who actually did the, vo- the the voiceover. I've heard lots of different things.
2: Um I don't
0: really care. I don't really I don't think I really want to know.
2: Well, and, and the credits are fun because it says the voice right. played by himself. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, just leave it. I don't want to know. You
1: tell me it's not Ed Harris?
2: Well,
0: that's one of the rumors, but I don't, I don't want to know for sure. Yeah, I want they, to just they've be never magical.
2: They've never commit to it. You don't yeah. know. I, I believe that's one of the primary names that has been thrown out there, but I, yeah. they've talked about Leota doing it. They've talked about maybe like a hybrid kind of thing. So yeah. It's super fun. It's it's like how they got the porg noise, I guess, for Star Wars as well. <laughs> just just
0: leave it alone. Leave movie magic. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and transition down to performance, and i I think we'll all agree the performances across the board are fantastic in this. Everybody's in the pocket. Nobody's overacting or melodramatic. And so I'm going to skip down to dialogue and start with you, Ross, and we'll we'll see if we can pull out maybe two, but we'll start with one one line of dialogue that you really like from this film that you think has some significance.
2: I thought, and I think it's especially, there are themes in this that are so relevant in today's landscape. And I know it wasn't meant then for what it can mean now. But Ray, Kevin Costner, at some point, uh, talking about the field says, anytime, they're all welcome here. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just, you know... Uh, that's who we should be. That's what baseball takes us back to is just like, Hey, this can be for everyone. This is, this is Jackie Robinson. This is Hank Aaron. This is, how are we making this okay for everyone to be a part of it right now? So to me, I thought that was, that's one of two that I wrote out in this space. Um, You know, but I think that's super powerful and resonated with me for today's environment but but it was relative even back then especially as you know they have the the book banning discussion earlier mm-hmm. you know there's still our ties and you know what americans are americans and a lot of the same things kind of resurface again and bubble up and simmer down um but it seems like we revisit them often
0: cory why don't you uh, drop in one of your lines of dialogue
1: I tell you what, uh, I've got a couple lines for the end that I'm going to say, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to focus on this one because I love Ray Liotta so much. And it's, you know, because I, it, it's the point of this movie I look at and I think of all of these things about the could have been that, that you know, the, these eight guys, the eight men out of the of the White Sox, right, who were denied this. It's almost as if I looked up a one description is because I was struggling, trying to figure out, okay, what, what theme am I focusing on with this movie? And this idea that they're a purgatory, that they never got what they should have because of what they did. They were the eight men out who cheated. She was Joe Jackson, who they never were able to prove. That's the break story right there. Denied, but he's the first one on the field, gets more time on the field. And, and so I think of all of the stories that go in this, and then he says, he's talking to Ray. About we had a we brought in more people and there was everybody wanted to come like just all of a sudden there's this you think of all these ghosts that just want to show up and start playing baseball again right there's legends you know I'm sure Babe Ruth would have been in that conversation and he talks about Ty Cobb and he says we didn't <laughs> like him when he was alive so we told him to stick it <laughs> and then he does his Ray Liotta laugh that is so sinister and so smirk Goodfellas casino ray Liotta and i just love it the the inner boil of turmoil that he has in his laugh that he you cannot just get anybody to do and uh but only ray Liotta and so i love that dialogue because it just showed you know hey everybody wants to come in here there's there's more people that have to un kind of fix and, and have some resolution to things that they could have been and so it, it's kind of nice but there's still a little bit of uh Competitiveness and, and some some of the voice <laughs> yeah. the, some of the swear words that they even threw in there and I was like man this is a family film <laughs> you know and uh, but that dialogue was great because it was the the competition the personality it doesn't just go away just because they're ghosts and and having to you know come up here and, and get that last game in
0: that's awesome so I have I have tons but I'm going to limit myself to two and I'm going to start with one I'm I'll, I'll end with the Heartfelt one, and and kind of build off what you said about the competitiveness, and I because I've always loved this line where Ray says to Shoeless Joe when he's going to pitch to him, "Don't we need a catcher?" And Shoeless Joe says, "Not if you get it near the plate, we don't." Yeah, just I mean it's arrogance, but like in the best possible way. You know, he's yeah. just supremely confident. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm I can handle this. This is going to be fine.
2: Yeah, it, it's very Hoosiers, and my team's on the floor. Yeah. Um. And it is, it's is—it's that old school approach of, hey, you know what? We're doing it this way. And mm-hmm. yeah, I love that as well. Just like, you know what? You get it near and I'll take care of this.
0: Yeah. Ross, once you once you go again, give me another line of dialogue.
2: Okay. And this is with James Earl Jones and Corey referenced it earlier. One of his, his kind of famous monologue at the end. But just one component of that that I... I think resonates quite a bit is it's money they have, but peace they lack. Hmm. Um, And this is the end of the eighties. So we've just gone through all of the excess of the eighties and it's, is it reflecting back on that a little bit? Is that some of the storytelling is, yeah, you know what? All these people are living more complicated lives, but they've lost a little bit of themselves within it. So You know, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I I heard that and I was just like, oh, that's really interesting. And especially knowing that that we were at the end of a decade and a very famous, prosperous decade that brought about yuppies, that brought about big giant cell phones and Miami Vice and all of that good stuff. Um, So being able to say that it's money they have, but peace they lack. As we're going to this place where we can hear grasshoppers and the crunch of the clay and the dirt, I think that's a nice play off of each other.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great read. And it's interesting, like watching this movie as an adult, you pick up a lot of different things you didn't pick up as a kid. And that would probably be one of them. Corey, you got another line of dialogue?
1: Uh, I, yeah, I've, I've got a couple, and uh, but I'm going to go with this one. It's the part where they're talking about, uh, James Earl Jones is talking about the field, and he says, this field, this game, is part of our past. It reminds us of all that was good. And I thought, you know, it's the part where Ray Liotta also says, it, it harkens back to the part where Ray Liotta says, you know, I love this game. It was just a game. You know and but but it wasn't just a game it was everything he loved it he would play for food money because it was so much of who he was and so it makes me think it is that very fabric that's woven in is games hockey baseball all these all these sports that we all love you know because there's people that don't love baseball they don't think they, they love other sports and that's okay it's it's something that is meant to be a childhood thing that you enjoyed so much that you had friends that you did things with and were so competition and camaraderie and team building and life lessons, and yet it turns out to be such an important foundation of a country, a city, of a person, of a family, of everything, a team to where here you are decades later as a ghost and all of a sudden you, you need this closure. You need this closure. I need to go to this field because I'm going to show up and pay 20 bucks to go watch a baseball for an afternoon. Like the people in the long line coming, they're showing up because they have to, because it's a fabric of of something that represents all the nostalgia that we all miss and love and we look for.
0: I'm just going to let that linger for a second because that was beautiful. Oh.
2: Um, <laughs> and it, it, gonna, it was a great build off of James. Yeah. Nice. So way to go, great.
1: Corey. And I got, at some point, we're going to have to talk about James Earl Jones because I'm a little confused on him. But...
0: Oh, we will. We will. Uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit and reference the, is this heaven? It's Iowa. But I don't want to, talk, I don't want to use that one because it's kind of a cliche. I'm going to go back to earlier in the film. And it's one of my favorite exchanges now between Ray and his wife. And I think it speaks volumes about their relationship and a lot about Annie. He says to her, do you think I'm crazy? And she pauses and then says, yes, which is right there. That's amazing. And then says, but I also think if you really feel that you should do this, then you should do it. And I just love that she is a hundred percent behind him and she has not heard the voice at all. She's just like, I support you. It doesn't matter.
2: Yeah. She's all in. And it's, it's almost unnerving how easy it is sometimes. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I think that's also some of some of the mystery of this film. And and it, it, it shows that bond and their relationship with their daughter as well. Yeah. I think all three of them, there, there's a level of respect for their young daughter uh, that the parents share with her that that's kind of fascinating.
0: I'm glad you brought that up, too, because I was just thinking something else just occurred to me. There's the later on, there's an exchange right before he goes to find Terrence Mann that kind of plays into that, too. It's like if she's been believing too easily to this point, that's a scene that kind of solidifies why she would go through with it. Right. She's like, I don't we don't have the money. It's going to be trouble. And then is you know is the green monster is fenway the one with the big wall in the in lo- in right left field or whatever in left field yeah the green monster and then yeah we had the same dream and like okay well that's legitimate now you're in because you've been roped in you're getting the voice in one form or another is talking to you too it's not just you're taking this all on faith so a little bit more realism in that in that sense uh, for body language and facial expressions I, one thing i found in in notes was just that um I'm going to hopefully not butcher his name. Uh, Rod DeDue. Do you guys know who he is? He was the USC coach. He was hired as a baseball advisor, and he'd won tons of championships in college baseball. I First time I'd ever heard his name. He was brought on along with uh, Don Buford to coach the actors. So there's a reason that the baseball action looks as good as it does. So I had Randy Oda
1: had never played baseball when he did this. That's crazy.
0: Then Why couldn't I, I they get him to hit left-handed it. though? Because Shoeless Joe's left-handed. That always bugs me now.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe they couldn't switch him over. But you know, yeah. he was. He said I saw a thing that said Ray Leo had never played baseball when he signed up to do this movie.
0: Well, he looks like a natural so, though.
1: He does. Well, and
2: when you have that much time hanging out in the corn, you you can yeah. you can pick up the other side of the plate a little bit.
1: You bet. <laughs> You'd Sixty think. years.
0: Uh, but that's true. I get what you're saying. Um but I do love him just pounding his glove at the beginning in anticipation of the fly balls. No words. Like he says so very little in that whole scene. And you just pointed out earlier, Corey, that there's no hardly any music in that scene either. It's just yep. sound effect and facial expression, body language. That's that tells the whole story.
1: And they and they the sound effect on that duff hit he does when he first tries to hit to Shoeless Joe Jackson is absolutely brilliant. You hear the ball hit the ground and boom, boom, You just tell he's embarrassed like I didn't even get it there. He's just yeah. looking at him. He's yeah, like, I, I just dribbled
2: time. it. It's not even a worm burner going down. Yeah. It is just a dribble. Yeah, I'm going to take bat. five
1: steps and pick it up, and then I'm going <laughs> to do. It. I don't know if Kevin Costner did that on purpose or not, or if that was part of it, but it was perfect.
0: Yeah, his face is just crestfallen. Oh man, all this, and then that happened. Uh, Would well, you guys have anything else for uh, for body language and facial expressions? I have a few more, but I want to. I not just I do. I got time. one
1: that I want to point out. It's the body language of the other characters when Moonlight Graham walks off the field. And all the ghosts come stand right at the edge. And they've been calling him rookie all day. And then, uh, you know, they call him Doc, when he comes back walking out because he's now old again. And uh, that's a powerful scene. I think that's the scene that resonates with me so much is because it's the his quote where he says, Well, there'll be other days I didn't realize. He says, We just don't realize life's most significant moments when they're happening. Back then I thought there will be other days. I didn't realize that that was the only day. And it's such a powerful quote because it's the way that we all live. There's always another day. There's always tomorrow. I always got this. I'll take care of it then. I'll spend more time doing this. I'll figure that out. And the days slip through and then you don't realize, you know, that was the last day back then. And so here's a guy who spent his whole career was that one day and he never got his at back. He finally does it. He winks at the pitcher. He gets his hit, does his his RBI and everything, and he's having a great, and he steps off and gives it up. But it's an acknowledgement on his part, because he's very content of, of the, I had two lives. The life that could have been, and I got a taste of it here, and I had a life that lived that was wonderful. And the respect of the other players as he's walking by, looking at him. I, I th- it was very powerful. It's very tearful. The one that makes you tear up, I think, and choke up a bit. So I think the body language of other actors for one character's main scene is really powerful here.
2: Well, in the body language of those players who have been so macho and been so baseball the entire time, they put that in check. And that's almost, that's more difficult. Like you're out there playing an athlete and now all of a sudden you're, you're having to show respect through your body actions. And, you know, some of them are shaking hands. Some of them are patting on the shoulder and, you know, I love it just like with those flimsier caps that they're wearing of just those quick nods. Yeah. Um, and all the, we, we know those, those are communication methods that, that people use and that means so much and to earn that respect. And that's all he wanted was the respect and to hear that he was good enough and could have made a difference. So, you know, and and now they're celebrating him almost more because he saved the daughter but he goes back through and then shoeless joe gives him that final bit of hey kid you know and it's very mean joe green with the with the towel and the coke commercial um yeah you know what you did it you belonged you're good enough
1: you were good enough and it's it's the acknowledgement what could have been would have been wonderful but I had I had this path that I had, and that was wonderful too. So, which is the whole summation of what I think this movie is for me. Even though it's not a necessarily a fan favorite movie, I'm not watching every year like Craig does. But I think I look at this movie, and that sums it up. It's the I'm looking at a fork of what could have been for these people, for all these characters. The eight men out who cheated, what could have been for them, their careers. Doc, Terrence, all these people, you know, Ray, what could have been, and then what they had at the end as a result of following this faith reward process.
0: Uh, anything else you guys want to talk about with performance before we talk about setting and design? The only other thing I had really was just the, we talked about already the costumes, uh, the cotton uniforms that absolutely feel authentic. And they're just so
1: huge. And like, it'd be hard to play in those, I think, but. Um, Did you notice Ray wearing the same shirt the first day when he, 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 Heard the voice, and he goes out the door and talks to the farmers. Do you ever hear voices in the field? He's wearing a shirt. He's wearing that same shirt the day that Shoeless Jackson shows up. The same outfit. I and did it,
0: not, but I'll have to look for that. In my
1: head, I looked at it as an acknowledgement of the first day when I heard the voice to the first day when they finally appear. And it, you know, because this is over a year later. Snow's come, winter's come, this is the next spring. And so I thought it was, it was just a... Hmm something that stood out to me just because I saw that shirt and I thought I wouldn't wear that shirt on a farm because I grew up on a farm. I wouldn't, it's too clean of a shirt to wear on a farm. But.
2: Well, and, and I think back, it, you, you brought up the the snow on the field and I think that's just, maybe this is back at cinematography. So sorry for jumping back. No, not a problem. Um, But that longing, you know, this is, this is a kid at recess because it's raining or snowing out, so you can't go outside. So we all know <laughs> that recess, when you were stuck inside, was just like, oh, really? I want to be outside running around. I want to be playing kickball, dodgeball, whatever you're doing. And seeing him there is as the celebrations happening behind him. And he's just longingly looking out at this snow dusted baseball field in his cornfield. Yeah. wanting something to happen. I, I love that.
1: Ross, I'm going to tell you, I feel that way right now as spring is here and I'm in my classroom and the <laughs> kids are doing work and stuff. And I look out the window behind me and it's sunny and it's looking nice out there. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I just want to be outside. <laughs> so, <laughs> so powerful. Nice.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought that scene up Ross. Cause I had that earlier for cinematography, but I didn't want to linger too much, but it's a beautiful scene. And it, that, yeah, that's, that's so good. Um, setting and design, uh, we've kind of touched on this already. I mean, it's, this is another thing that's beautiful about old, slightly older, I guess slightly older, 34 years old now, Greg, um, we are old now. Yes. We're old. I know, oh. <laughs> um, shot on location, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's shot in Dubuque County, Iowa. You mentioned Rosser that there's the field is still there that they made for this film. And then, you know, MLB has a adjacent field where they're actually playing games, uh, which is great. And of course, Fenway Park is actually Fenway Park. And somewhere in there, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are hanging out as extra. I think I saw them.
1: there. Yeah, There's a scene where two kids are walking up, and it's Matt Damon's profile is very distinct. Yeah. And I see him walk, and it's just the outline of him. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's Matt Damon.
0: Yeah, I've never been able to find him. I have to keep looking. Um, but for set decoration, um, I wanted to talk about, first off, No, actually, I guess it all boils down to Terrence Mann's place, because first off, it's the first door that doesn't have a chicken in the window, uh, which is a great description. Yeah, he's in that kosher neighborhood and you're just walking through and there it is. Uh, But his his office slash house, I think, is interesting to his personality. It's not very homey in there with all of the uh, shelves and the boxes. But one thing I noticed this time that I don't think I'd ever noticed before is that he has a telescope. So he has this huge door that is absolutely designed to keep the world out. But he also has a telescope because he's not completely given up on the world. That's the way I look at that.
1: Is he a ghost? <laughs> is Terrence man a ghost? Well, because here's the question. Okay. Janice asked me this question at the end, when he walks off into the cornfield, he disappeared. He faded off right at the end. And we never see Terrence Mann again. We don't know what happened to his body. And so, Janice said, "Wait, was he a ghost too?" And so then I kind of rewound back and watched a couple scenes with him. And I thought, you know, Doc was a ghost, right? Wasn't? I mean, yeah. when he's yeah. he gets time traveled back into 1972, he kind of wipes the license plate off and sees it 72. Sees the man walking. It's smokier a little bit. Talks to him. Has this whole experience with Doc. Picks up his young ghost self. Takes him to the field and has that experience. Is Terrence Mann that as well? Because he stopped writing, or did he disappear? And like, I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I mean, all of a sudden, he's back in front of the car, and he gets in the car, and they go on this adventure to find Doc. I, I can't decide about that a, because when she asked me that, board? I said. It is also a fan theory too, Craig. But I, I will tell you this, that before I knew it was a fan theory, my wife asked me that question. Okay. And so I am a fan of fan theories, but this was a fan theory we came up with that we realized, oh, after I looked it up, oh, this could have been a theory that is okay. other people have thought as well. Because is he a, is he a ghost? I Was his – because you know why?
2: <laughs> Here's
1: his resolution that, that okay. Janice pointed out to me. Terrence Mann was bitter and angry throughout the whole show, like when Kevin Costner first met him. And so one of the things that we noticed was after he goes to write this, he's going out into the cornfield, he says, what a story to tell. He's going back to writing. He's found his passion. He's found his joy. Yes. His sight of what could have been him writing again. He gave up on all this writing. He gave up on his movement that never happened. Now he's going back to it. Which is where he goes off into the cornfield, and Ray Liotta's comment about "you're not invited, but he is" makes me think that that might be there might be some relevance to that idea. I don't know. You could disagree okay. with me. I don't know. I don't know what to okay. say about that. Oh,
0: oh, oh, I do disagree. I have some. I have some evidence, some text evidence from the film to tell you why that's oh, not. Oh, darn good. it! Yeah. Well, my, let me live I, my dream. I have two. The first one is that Mark, played by Timothy Busfield, who does not believe and does not see the ballplayers. Sees him right away. Who's this, Elvis? And right. then the other thing is that it's he's in the newspaper as being missing. Hey, did you know you were missing? And, and his dad. Yeah, his dad's looking for him. So that so last one's not as strong, but i I would go with I would go with Mark seeing him first. So
1: or he's missing <laughs> because
0: yeah, I see that's, found his body. It's yet. weaker that way, but yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's amazing uh, Ross did you have anything under setting design you wanted to point out set decoration props any of that stuff
2: yeah again just you' you're getting the bat bags you're getting those element those details that they added that seem very simple it is a lot of stuff that I could probably go get out of my garage right now and record some audio with and and take pictures of but how they did it was beautiful and You know, it's acknowledging the beauty of the game and the elements of the leather, of that cotton, of, you know, and and we've talked about it before, the the ball hitting the bat and making that cracking sound. And, you know, I'm thinking even, you know, as the balls are going into the cornfield and hearing that kind of thwap. Of of hitting the the corn, as it's going through, it's a different sound than what you're getting somewhere else. So, all of those elements and how that setting took us out of Fenway Park, took us out of a a big field with tons of fans somewhere, and simplified the elements of the game. Like this, this was so much of this game. And film, I think, were just elemental and natural. And that's the beauty of of what they did with the setting to help tell the story.
0: Again, I'm just going to let that linger for a minute because I don't want to step on that. Um, but I do – there's kind of a couple more fun things that I wanted to point out. This time – I've seen this movie, like I said, like over every year. So I've probably seen it 20, 30 times. There is a brass bed upstairs – in the Kinsella house, then that cannot be a coincidence after Shoeless Joe mentioned that they had brass beds in the hotels. Hmm. I was just like, Oh, that's noticed. interesting. That didn't have to be there, but it was, um, I wanted to point that out, but I also, i always loved when Ray travels, somehow travels back to 1972, how they tell us that really, really quickly, where you have the Nixon campaign poster, you have Godfather on the theater marquee. And then of course he goes down and checks. Let me check the license plate too. I just love It's so quick. And it. I just always love when they show instead of tell, like, you don't have to, Hey, I'm in 1972. It's just, these are just touchstones from that era. So.
2: Well, and even that film marquee, it, there were two opportunities here. And this one was more dialogue, I guess. Um, but we're getting the Godfather and paying homage to that here, this amazing film. But then there's also Annie making fun of Ray earlier and saying, oh, he found his old bat and its name was Rosebud, Um, you (laughs) know, with the reference to Citizen Kane. I was just like, oh, I I love these little, these little gems dropped in. And again, there, there's so many aspects of love letters within this film, the different things. And these little baby name drops to films. I, I mean, not even baby, you're getting a full marquee there, you know it's not an accident what film they chose like because it could have been 71 in this other film instead you know this director probably loves the godfather mm-hmm. and yep i learned at my film school you know probably had to watch stagecoach probably had to watch you know all these other foundational films uh but citizen kane and the godfather getting calls out i thought was very cool
1: and it's yeah. a wonderful life. Yes, that was the plane on the TV. I think that was an intentional choice, just to kind of show the here's the a world of what ifs. And- oh yeah.
0: So uh, let's move down to characters. And uh, let's see if we. I know you wanted to talk about Terrence Mann. Corey. I'm assuming that was your was he a that ghost was my there? The that was my um, I wanted to point out that he was is J.D. Salinger in the book because this is a book adaptation. We haven't talked about that to this yes. point. The book's name was, was Shoeless Joe. And uh, so it was J.D. Salinger in the book. But uh, apparently Salinger threatened the production with a lawsuit if they use his name. So they just turned him into Terrence Mann, which is fine. I love how cranky he is at the beginning and then you have that yeah that he softens i don't even remember you know I remember thinking that he's so rude at the beginning but he somehow goes along with it cuz kevin costner has his hand in his jacket like it's a gun and initially, or he takes pity on him i don't know you're he's a pacifist getting hit with a crowbar yeah yeah you're a pacifist yeah
2: yeah i mean at that at that point ray in in the flat or apartment or whatever you want to call it Ray is the worst communicator alive at that point because he could have just said, Hey, can I take you to a baseball game? Yeah. And it turned into this whole back and forth of, you know, I still can't believe he didn't use the crowbar on him, but it would have made for a much different movie, obviously. Yeah. Um, but that was a funny part. And that's kind of Kevin Costner is so warm in this, but he's also very goofy and awkward at times. Um, And that's not a bad thing. It is just kind of, yeah, this guy's trying to figure out everything as he goes along. Um, And I, I thought that was an interesting component to his performance. Yeah, it is one of the least confident Costner roles that I can think of.
0: Like, he's usually pretty, pretty confident.
1: Somewhat bumbling in that part. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, other characters that we haven't—we oh, we talked about Moonlight Graham. We didn't mention Burt Lancaster. Uh, his his final film role He's just amazing. Just I don't know if chewing scenery is not quite the right phrase, but he's magnetic.
1: His delivery is great. His facial features. There's tight tight shots on his on his face so that you mm-hmm. see him when he because his eyes do several things when he talks, and it just really draws you in. You know to that, that old charm that he has. So
2: it, it he almost looks fake. Like yeah. it, it's that much of a, fake. there were Charles Bronson elements of his face to me as I'm looking at him. And it's just mm-hmm. this powerful thing that stands out where you're just like, I wonder if some of these amazing special effects artists today could replicate how he looks, you know, in practical makeup. Mm -hmm. Um, because it just stands out. And like you said, it's so powerful and commanding and it, it makes you believe that he's this successful doctor that could have been a professional athlete. It's like, yeah, of of Mm -hmm. course you're that person. You, you're built this way. You're, you're that percentage of people that have this gift that can do the, all of these special things and kind of be a natural from one to the next.
0: Yeah and speaking of it's a wonderful life and there's also Harvey clips from Harvey in there too uh I read that James Stewart Jimmy Stewart was offered the role but turned it down and that would have been an interesting choice I don't know if I would have liked that as much as Burt Lancaster though
1: Burt's delivery is too good
0: Yeah he's he, just a love telling the stories and Yeah I mean I can see why you'd 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 go that way but like there's just gravitas with Lancaster that I don't think there quite is with Jimmy Stewart. It's just they're just different actors.
2: Well, in the I I don't I didn't write down the name of the actor, but the young Moonlight Graham, yeah. like that was just a breath of fresh air, and that was that was fun to see, and and that was that's that kid that you see waiting to go play the game or to get picked up by his parents afterwards because. They may have forgot or they're running late to pick him up after practice or his game. Um, but just that youthful exuberance of, I just want to play ball. And that's all that matters. It's a summer day. I'm meeting my friends at the Diamond. And we're going to waste four hours here screwing around and have a blast.
0: Yeah. Frank Frank Whaley is his name. You've been, been in tons of things. I loved in that, at that point in the movie, it's, I mean, it, it's okay. It's do Ex Machina. It, it is this movie. will it, the plot will go in any direction, time travel, younger ghost. but you know, we don't care because it's still magical. It still works.
1: Well, and I think that's the delivery of the line that Moonlight gives old Moonlight. Uh, what's his name again? I just blanked on his name. Uh, who plays old Graham, Moonlight Graham, Dr. Graham. Burt Lancaster. Burt of the Burt Lancaster. Oh my gosh. Uh, that's the, that's the line that he says, because he says, uh, he describes his wish about looking down at a pitcher and winking at him and stretching a triple or a double into a triple and sliding into the base, which he does as a young guy. And he says, that's my wish, Ray Kinsella. That's my wish. Is there enough magic out there in the moonlight to make this dream come true? And it's like you said, Craig, it's, it's, we don't know where the story's going to go, but there's magic involved here, and we're just along for the ride.
0: Um, let's see. Anything else for characters, or should we just go ahead and move down to hero's journey? I think we're I think we're good. So uh, for hero's journey, not not really the typical hero's journey, but I just had that it's a, it's a story of reconciliation for Ray and his father, and a restoration
2: of Ray's faith in family and in himself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to kick it off, you know, we obviously have the call to adventure and some supernatural aid that's there as well. So yeah. there, there are those elements coming in and I mean, there can't be a more literal call to adventure. <laughs> um, yeah. And it resurfaces multiple times to take him through that hero's journey and, and get to the part where he has to accomplish all of these things for the good of others And at the end, it it results in him getting that opportunity to have a catch with his father, you know, and that's fun. Like my baseball memory with my dad, um, and it's one that he he laughs about still today. I was on second base probably as a 12-year-old, and I'm paying attention to the signs from the third base coach. And all of a sudden, the third base coach is like, back, back, back. I got picked off at second my dad had been talked into being the umpire for second base. So I'm sitting there in the dirt, looking up at him and he punches me out and he's just like, after the game, he's like, Oh, that's the worst thing I've ever had to do in sports. Oh. Uh, but it's something that I still remember today. And I remember just being there, reaching for the bag and looking up just like, Oh, what's he going to say here? And I was absolutely <laughs> out, Yeah, but yeah. you never know. And, and, you know, great honesty and everything like that. But he was just like, he gave that kind of squint of, oh, I hate doing this to you, but you're out. Um, yeah. So that's fun to me.
0: Love it. Yeah, it actually fits the paradigm for Hero's Journey pretty well. And Thanks for sharing that story, Ross. That's, that's, a, great that's story. a great story. It's <laughs> a good lesson to learn early on. Um, yeah, for world building, I I just said it's it's solidly grounded in our world, but and somewhat idealistic, but then that's that's what makes the fantasy that much more powerful. We talked about the lighting and the sounds, and but it, and you have no idea where it's going because we don't know what the rules are.
2: Yeah, I don't know if they knew what the rules were. It's just like oh, this <laughs> yeah, this is good here. This will work here. Throw,
0: throw this into why not? So uh, let's let's go ahead and talk about our final thoughts as we wrap up. Ross, why don't you start with your final thoughts on
2: Field of Dreams? This has been super fun and, and this discussion and, you know, finding the elements of, you know, it, sometimes it's hard to go back and watch an older movie again. It holds up, but it's still older. So I, it, it has taken a little bit more time to warm up. This discussion has definitely helped me enjoy it more. Um, And I don't know if this becomes an annual thing for me, like the natural and 42 and um uh, even major league like those are three and, and i'll throw naked gun in there as well like <laughs> those are movies for me or i'm just like okay this is baseball that i yeah. really love um but it's there are enrico elements Palazzo. there enrico <laughs> yeah. it's enrico Palato. <laughs> um but there are those elements here. And when I do need a good example or if the Giants start struggling this year and I just need to take it back to basics, I want to hear that crunch of the shoes in the dirt again and take it back to there and kind of uh, – this gives a palate cleanser for a baseball fan, I think. Corey? Corey?
1: Yeah, I, I, I would agree there. I think you you point out like Major League Naked Gun, the, the Mariners in that scene. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. When you look at those, those are great movies. They're fun movies. They're baseball movies. But when you look at this, this is more than that. This is a – the whole movie is discussing stats. He's telling his daughter about stats. He's talking about Shoeless Joe. And then when Shoeless Joe comes on and he's talking about, I'd have played for nothing and describes, I'd love the – the sights, the sounds, the crowd, the smells, everything, it's all nostalgia. It's all baseball feel, which is what that passion is for that. And then in the middle of it, you also get a magic in the movie where there's enough magic to make everyone's dream come true, to get everybody that one last chance to see what could have been or a couple more moments in the sun to play the game. And I think that's what makes this movie a passionate movie. That's what makes people love this movie. Um, And so I I think it's great. I I do appreciate having watched it again after it's been a probably a twenty year hiatus. I think so. I, I does harken me back. It makes me think there is more to this than just you know the field of dreams. It's it's a great movie. So I'm glad we picked it and and went with this. And and uh, I will say this. I do also think it's the second most misquoted movie of all time. Both movies which involve James Earl Jones, which is kind of odd. The Luke, I am your father which never said the word Luke. And then in this one, it says, always misquoted as, if you build it, they will come. It never said that. It always said, if you build it, he will come. So, um, but that's because I think it's such a staple of American cinema now that you look and you say, this movie, that line in this movie fits in here the way that baseball fits in the backbone of America.
2: Great point.
0: Yeah, I just, you guys are just killing it. So, I have so little to say. Um, I said it before, and I'll say it again. This film, I think, holds up beautifully. Like, there are only a handful of things, like the microfiche, that kind of pull me out for a moment uh, as being somewhat dated. It still feels fresh to me, it, and it just always makes me feel good. So, when I want to jump into that nostalgia feeling or just want to feel good in general, like, I'll throw this on and. Get excited about it again. It, I, I know what it's doing. I know it's manipulating me, but I just don't care. I, I enjoy the movie thoroughly, and uh, I'm glad we talked about this movie. I'm getting excited for baseball season. It's just yeah. refresh. So you know, I had to, we had to pick a baseball movie. This is one of my favorites, and like, go Giants,
2: go Giants, and go, and go Mariners, Mariners, Corey. You're you're on the go other Mariners. side of uh, of baseball for me there. So I, I'm happy to say, uh, give you a go
1: Mariners as well. Yeah. Well, and that's the that's the game that I first game that I ever went to was a Mariners game. So I mean it was that's the first pro game I ever saw in in the Kingdom, Ken Griffey Jr.
2: So, see. Well and Craig, you were candlestick park, correct?
0: I uh, well my first actually now that you say that, my first major league baseball game I went to was nineteen eighty five Mariners in the Kingdom versus the Boston Red Sox. And I don't remember who was pitching for either team. I remember Alvin Davis was, was one of the players for the Mariners at the time. That was my first, my first base, baseball game live.
2: The, the first I remember is going, again, with my dad to Memorial Stadium and the Baltimore Orioles hosting the Detroit Tigers and watching Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell hit back-to-back yes. home runs to, nice. to beat my team.
0: Not so nice, but I remember those players so well. So
2: let's let's do okay.
0: So one, one last thing, I just thought of this: um, most important or best, just pick a baseball game, your favorite baseball game that you've been to, because I just want to share one that I have.
2: And I don't care who goes first. I went, so I can pick almost any Giants game as a special game to me. But I, I did get to go to the twenty-one thirty-one Cal Ripken game at Camden Yards. Um, I don't know that many sporting experiences will ever build up to what that was in the twenty one minute standing ovation where my hands were numb and it was just like, Are we still doing this? Like, do we still need to be doing this? But no one wanted to no one wanted to be the one to stop it. Uh yeah. so it kept going and, and what a special moment for an amazing athlete who accomplished so much. So, you know, that's where you know, Craig, we brought it up during the recording for the Album Cockpit podcast that that you were on with me discussing your baseball album. Um, but that's my black and orange baseball teams. I've there got go. the Giants, but I've kind of got the Orioles in my back pocket cuz that's who I grew up with.
0: Corey, what about you? Do you got a
1: favorite baseball
0: game memory?
2: Oh, man.
1: Yes, I got I got I got one. I one I went to the Seattle Mariners game in the Kingdom, where I was a youth director, and uh, my, one of my first years at, at a church in, when I was younger, right out of college, 96, 96, somewhere in there. And uh, we all had shirts, and we I had spent the night riding Mariners on the shirts, on a big M and the A and the R, and we got on TV. We were standing up in the crowd. Nice. And we all had white shirts, and we, we got on TV. That, and then the other one was the local one, the Tri-City Dust Devil game. Back then it was called the posse. and took the youth group there, brought my glove, ball comes pop fly right over the back. I happened to be there and I caught it. And uh, just the, had my glove, having been a baseball player, just that catch, not a drop. And it was just a nice, good crisp sound, like you said, that crispness. I still can hear it. It just is great. And people, people applauded and cheered like I had done something great. And I was like, you know, oh, that guy, I caught a ball. So <laughs> nice. that was a great moment.
0: All right, Um, 2001, uh, 9-11 happens, and that baseball stops for a week. And this is the year that Bonds hits 73, and he's just hitting a home run literally every other day. And what happened with the Giants schedule is they took their home stand and bumped it to the end of the season. So they were going to finish on the road, but they ended up finishing at home against the Dodgers. And my friend Brent, God bless him, got tickets to that game. He called me up. I was living in San Diego at the time and said, Hey, I'm going to the game. And I was like, dude, you suck. He's like, no, no, I got an extra ticket. You're going too." Yes. So we got I flew up to like Sacramento and had to drive down. It was all weird. Cause I'd find places to stay. And that was just bizarre. Just getting there was like, I was just running adrenaline the whole time. The hero's journey. Yeah. It was the hero's journey. Yeah. And I'll never forget. And I've told this story many times, walking into the park and seeing all of the, cause he'd hit, you know, two home runs two nights before um, to break the record. He gets 71 and he gets 72. And there was these shirts of like 71 and 72. And I was just like, if he hits another home run, those shirts are pointless. Like I could buy one on the way out, you know, and it's going to be the same. And sure enough, first inning, he goes yard. And it was just like, yep, that's what we came for. (laughs) It was just amazing that, that that happened. I got to see that. Um, And another kind of just coda to that, too, is um, that was supposed to be uh, when it was earlier scheduled was supposed to be the 50th anniversary of Bobby Thompson's shot around the world. Um, They postponed that ceremony until the next year. And I went to that game, too, not knowing that it was the same thing. So I have a ticket stub and a program that have dates for a game that never happened on that day that's fun a year separately so i remember just like hey this is let me look at this day oh my goodness how did this happen so uh but yeah i was there for bond 73 and so that's that's kind of my
1: were you in the vicinity where it was hit or were you on the side watching we were it go in,
0: we were in center field and so you okay. could tell when he launched it because he hit it to right field hit it right into the arcade as soon as he hit it it was like and it was like a it was um a guy through uh like knucklers so it was all Bonds. It was like a 50 mile an hour pitch. And yeah, it was all him. He was muscle. like out on his front foot and just, yeah, exactly, just muscled it out. Ross Stripling, yeah. I think, was the guy that threw it. Okay. Um, wow.
2: Yeah, first inning. It was like he might end another one, but really, that's what we came to see. Yeah, so. that, that's history right there. And, you know, one of the greatest swings ever, as far as I'm concerned. So absolutely. Um, I am absolutely biased, but I will. Ken uh, Griffey I, was good too. His swing was Well, amazing. he was very, That yes. swing was gorgeous. And and just put on the baseball hat backwards and oh. you know, that that's iconic as well.
0: Yeah. So uh Ross, before we get out of here, I want to give you a chance to just plug what you got going on. You mentioned briefly earlier, but I want you to have the floor. The floor is yours. What what's going on with you? What what kind of things can we look forward to from you?
2: Yeah. If you are a music fan, I've got the album Cockpit Podcast, which is on Spotify and only Spotify because I can actually play the music in the podcast. So it's kind of taking the journey from track one through the final track of an album and breaking it down and stories that people have, you know, so think about your favorite album. What stories do you associate with it? You know, was this your first slow dance? Was this, Hey, that this was the road trip going to this place. Where, where's the music taking you? Um, so I'm enjoying that. I've now recorded eight episodes for it. So this is only about two months old, um, but I'm having a blast and it's letting me connect with new friends, reconnect with old friends um, and learn from people. So trying to get a very diverse audience for it. Um, and then if, if you just want to contact me, Ross Holobin on Twitter.
0: Nice. Yeah, and we'll have some, some stuff for that in the in the show notes as well. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the Speakpipe app on our website. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend. Our next episode will be a review of Back to the Future with special guest, New York Times bestselling author Ian Descher. And we have another announcement. We're giving one lucky listener a digital copy of the Back to the Future trilogy. Look for the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile and retweet and like the tweet to enter. Giveaway ends on 4-11-23. The winner will be announced on the next episode of Reading Between the Reels. And if you'd like to contribute to our next show, send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from Back to the Future, and we'll share it on the next episode.